Hello, welcome to Stump, Death and Taxes. This is Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. I am a life actuary, and today I am coming to you with three tales of accountability. One has a happy ending, and then we have progressively less happy tales, because I am an actuary, of course, and we always have dismal tales for you. Well, that's not always the case, but it is the case today. And first, the first story is about the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and it came to my attention from a story in Financial Times. Um, and it was sold as an Excel error. So the uh, Financial Times, it's from Alphaville, Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund's $92 million Excel error. Frankly, I'm not going to read from the Financial Times piece because it really wasn't an Excel error as far as I can tell. Uh, it, it's actually all coming from a research report that was actually an uh, anthropological research report on the managerial culture at NBIM or Norge Bank Investment Management, which is the investment management of this sovereign wealth fund. And let me just read the title, Anthropological Gaze, Stories and Reflections on NBIM Culture. I'll link to it. It's at researchgate.net. Uh, it's by Dr. and I, I don't know if it's Tony or Tone Danielson, Oslo, December 2023. And it's all in English um, it, from the introduction. And I'm not going to do the quote. Well, maybe I should do a quote. A dose of complexity can disrupt overconfidence cycles and spur rethinking cycles. It gives us more humility about our knowledge and more doubts about our opinions. And it can make us curious enough to discover information we were lacking. Elision. It takes stories and texts that read less like a lawyer's opening statement and more like an anthropolo anthropologist's field notes by Adam Grant. Think again, page 165. Um, so everyday life in Norwich Bank investment management is mainly about numbers, Excel sheets, control, results, and information. Um, and then it continues on. And so this was a uh, this anthropologist going from a period September 2022 until October 2023 talking with various people in the organization about various things going on decision making yada yada and starting on page 45 in a section titled dealing with mistakes there was a quote from one of the people and I'm just going to read it. Last year, spring 2022, we had an offsite, offsite meeting. One of our workshops was on mistakes and how to deal with them. We wrote post-it notes, classifying them into different categories from harmless to no-goes. One of my post-it notes, I remember it vividly read, miscalculation of the Ministry of Finance benchmark. I placed it in the category unforgivable. When I wrote that note, I honestly couldn't even dare to think about the consequences, Elision. And less than a year later, I did exactly that. My worst nightmare. It was a manual mistake. My mistake. I used the wrong date, December 1st, 
instead of November 1st, which is clearly stated in our mandate. The mistake was not revealed until months later by the Ministry of Finance. They reported back that the numbers did not add up. I did all the numbers once more, and the cause of the mistake was identified. I immediately reported to Patrick, that's the global head, and Dag, the chief. I openly expressed that this was my mistake and mine alone. I felt miserable and was ready to take the consequences, whatever they might be. Okay. This is the $92 million mistake. Um, so this was a, an index that was calculated once a year is my understanding, and it's actually keyed off of some value as of November 1st and not December 1st. The Excel spreadsheet part was that he manually entered not the value as of that date, he entered the date December 1st instead of the date November 1st, and then the lookup all of the logic of the spreadsheet was correct. The spreadsheet formulas were look up the value of whatever date was entered. So it was, there was nothing Excel in there per se, other than whatever checks there may have been was that, oh, the lookup was done correctly as long as you put in the correct date. Any error that occurred was whatever date he had put in. Now, maybe there had been checks in the process, but what was being checked was that maybe that the lookup was done correctly or something like that. Um, the check that occurred months later by the Ministry of Finance was that was the number as of November 1st, and that's where the disparity of $92 million came from. Um, Again, nothing involving, it wasn't Excel. And a lot of times we find out Excel never did anything wrong. Now, there are times where it really is, in many cases, Excel's fault. Like when it changes perfectly good gene names into dates, but there's something about that they've changed. But still, humans are supposed to be in control and supposed to do checks and balances. And the happy story here, supposedly, is how did accountability work in this organization? Um, so, you know, just reading from the uh, report, so let me go back to the report. However, the processes, the procedures, the control on investments and calculations of amongst others, the benchmark is the core of risk's mandate. That the numbers presented by risk is correct every time is their job and the core of their pride and identity. It's just one number, one number per year that they had to get right. That's me interjecting. When gaps in the procedures are identified, these gaps must be addressed fast by good thinking and meticulous work to restore the ministry's confidence, but also their own. Shame is contagious and it clings. The task at hand was complex and comprehensive. It was crucial that the team worked as a team, not a group of people working in parallel. When the organization resolves crises and ambiguous occasions by dealing with it collectively, it provides psychological safety and healthy teams. Crisis strengthens cohesion or reveals the lack of it. And the Danielson 2018. So uh, this uh, anthropologist is quoting him or herself. 
NBIM is set up to handle volatile markets, loss of money, and professional mistakes on numbers. Crises create a tightening and narrowing of the normal principles. Leaders and the organization switches from its regular set of principles to its regular emergency set. In this case, the number one order effect was a big loss of money. However, they gained another effect, which might prove to be even more valid in the long term. They proved they could work as a team. This benchmark miscalculation stress tested the risk department and they learned collectively. It's easy to speak about psychological safety when everything is going smoothly. The real test comes when things go wrong. I'm really proud of where we are as a team and an organization right now, the global head stated in the interview. Psychological safety comes with good leadership. I have tried my best to discuss the case with the chief several times. He would hear none of it. I just did what I had to do. This was teamwork. You could have done it differently. No, you could have dragged the poor chap with you to the leader group and board and thrown him to the lines. Of course not, he said with an indignant look and continued, leadership comes with responsibility. During the crisis, the leaders kept focus on the cause and the employees, not the effect. When leaders walk the talk, they become trustworthy. The, this crisis proved that they were not only capable of dealing with the hardcore professional issues. In Simon's opinion, they also made new practices. The soft issues, caring for the people involved was done in a new way. This was locally seen as a culture change. So what actually happened is, yes, the person who was responsible for that number, who had misentered the date, yada, yada, you know, came clean. He's like, and of course this was found months after the fact, $92 million hit. I don't know percentage wise, you know, but that's still a big number. Norway's a lot smaller than the U S et cetera, et cetera. But it would be nice to know. I would like to know what they changed in their processes. That's just me as an actuary. And I'd like to know what happened, but uh, the whole team took responsibility. They did not fire the guy. Um, and frankly, you know, it, really was a failure of people above whoever this was because there should have been more checks in place. If it was just this one very important number once a year, there should have been more people checking it. So yeah, I would say there was accountability along the line and I am sure they have changed their processes so that this one number is checked a little more thoroughly. So this is kind of a happy ending in that everyone within the organization are really taking accountability and one would assume going forward that it would be a lot more robust process and the number that will come out so if you heard the timing on all of this, that was the November 2022 and the December 2022 number, and it got exposed during 2023. So I am sure the November 2023 and the December, you know, that probably got reported in December 2023, a number for the index was probably very rock solid. And I am sure their processes going forward are very good. Well, that was kind of a bait and switch again with regards to an Excel error and that supposedly ended happily. Now moving on to my second story of accountability or perhaps a lack of accountability. And this comes via Liz Farmer and her Substack long story short in a 
in a story called Saving Distressed Cities from Themselves. Now, I'm a paying subscriber to Liz Farmer's Substack, so I'm not going to read her entire story, obviously. This is about Hopewell, Virginia. Now, I saw this uh, town's name, and I'm like, ah, I used to stop at Hopewell all the time. Um, there's a bypass around Richmond if you're going up 95 or down 95. Um, I used to go between New York and North Carolina all the times with my kids. You go see grandma and grandpa um, and all the North Carolina relatives, and we would stop at a Wawa in, <laughs> in Hopewell, and also there's a Wendy's there that we would stop at. Um, yeah, and I used to crowd into the bathroom at the Wawa with all three kids and me in the bathroom when they were little. So yeah, I was remembering that, but that's all I knew about Hopewell. Well, evidently, Hopewell, like various other towns, like Chester, Pennsylvania, which uh, Liz Farmer has also been covering, has long been a distressed town uh, financially. And uh, it has been limping along, and the state of Virginia has been trying to kind of take it over financially and getting this fixed up. Um, the bullets that uh, Liz has about this is, you know, there's been staff turnover, including the finance director and city manager. All three major rating agencies withdrew their credit rating by 2018, like completely withdrew. That's bad. <laughs> they haven't submitted a clean audited financial report to the state of Virginia since 2014. So that sucks. <laughs> And opinions from the CPAs hired to review 2015 through 2018 reports found material discrepancies in cash transactions between the city school's financial records and the city treasurer's records. Now, I have talked with uh, accountants, not about Hopewell specifically, about, but about other public finance systems when you have these problems in financial reports and you can't get a clean audit. This does not necessarily mean embezzlement is going on, fraud is going on, et cetera, et cetera, especially if you don't have anybody being charged with embezzlement or fraud yet. Um, but it does make it easier for a variety of people to be doing underhanded things if you are not having any kind of controls. But most importantly, um, if you don't have any handle on the financial situation like this and you can't trace, you know, balance sheet, income statement, any of that kind of thing in a controlled manner, um, you know, you will not have access to credit markets, definitely not uh, affordable credit compared to other municipalities. Uh, everything is going to be a lot more expensive. It's true for individuals who do not have a good grasp of their finances, it's true for municipalities, it's true for states, it's true for sovereigns. Um, you know, it doesn't matter that you supposedly have the power to tax uh, if you cannot show that, you know, <laughs> what your revenue is in any reliable way, the those who might lend to you are going to be a little wary of you. One of the news stories that uh, Liz Farmer links to is from November 21st, 2023. 
After groups find more problems, Hopewell allocates more money to pay for fixing them. Uh, it's going to take longer and cost more than expected to get Hopewell's financial infrastructure back on track. Why? Because according to a municipal advisory firm brought in to fix the problems, things were worse than it originally anticipated. The Robert Bob Group, hired by the city last August to help Hopewell get caught up on state-required audits and develop remedies for the city's somewhat feeble accounting practices, has added three more objectives to its plan of attack. Among those recommendations were completely revamping the city finance department from the top down, booting the temporary accounting firm that Hopewell's previous administration had hired to assist with the books and streamlined the city's munis system. In addition to the new objectives, added more than $864,000 to the $988,000 Hopewell originally agreed to when it signed the contract with RBG last summer. So it almost doubled the contract. So... This is not good. Um, This is not a very large town. It's only 23,000 people about. One of the things, and you heard me mention, it's kind of, Hopewell is kind of on this bypass around Richmond. So there are people like me who, well, I used to travel a lot more, who are adding to the town's coffers via sales tax in various ways. So perhaps that's why they felt like they could, um, you know, just add on to uh, the, you know, the take. Uh, Liz Farmer does look at fines and forfeitures, and this is actually something, and maybe Liz can look into this. Um, One of the things that various southern towns i'm sorry it's not just in the south but midwest and other places you have speed traps you have all sorts of things in the south where um (laughs) they try to get people on speeding fines parking fines all sorts of things and one of the um, items that uh, liz noted was for the audited and of course the audited financials stopped about a decade ago. So it's hard to really, you know, get a handle of what it's like now, but there was a huge ramp up in revenue via fines and forfeitures over, you know, the post um, 2008 financial crisis. So maybe that's what they were doing. And of course, that was the period, um, you know, after I had my kids in their early to, you know, I'm sorry, the mid 2020s when I was driving back and forth between New York and North Carolina for all the trips, um, all of the visits with grandma and grandpa. So who knows? That might get ironed out somehow. Virginia, the state of Virginia, evidently has um, House bills, Senate bills that have been going through the legislature that are going to be more aggressive in taking over municipalities that are just don't have their finances in order, maybe kind of like Michigan, maybe some other states. And everybody needs to remember, of course, that municipalities don't have sovereignty, but states sure do. Um, 
And states do have an interest in making sure that the local services, such as, you know, fire, uh, do not collapse under um, just these financially profligate towns or just not taking care of business. There can be a variety. It doesn't even require, I mean, I did mention fraud and embezzlement. It doesn't require anything like that. It can just be incompetence in some cases um, that is going on. And in some cases you have people who like being in charge, but not really having the wherewithal to be in charge of a modern town. So accountability can be tough. So you might have those who are actually living in the town, but they're not really being accountable. They keep failing, but you have no way of getting the locals might not really be able to get rid of the person who has local power, as it were. Those in the state uh, level, and Virginia, of course, is a very large state, Um, Now, Richmond is right there. That's the state capital of Virginia. But politically, it's far away. And they crowbar whoever out of the town. They can make all sorts of changes to the local government. But it's not the politicians in Richmond who are the ones who get hurt by the decisions. And that's the problem with a certain kind of accountability. If I go back to the Norwegian um, sovereign wealth fund, they're in a corporation. You can get fired, for example. If you were a Richmond, um, (laughs) the Richmond in Richmond, if you are a politician in Richmond, Virginia, and your constituency or actually in those ring suburbs around Washington, D.C. Now, maybe you're not familiar with the geography of Richmond, of Virginia, Washington, D.C., etc. Richmond is kind of like in the middle of the state. Virginia is very wide, north to south, and um, D.C. is actually pretty far away. Uh, and the area near Washington, D.C., that's where a lot of the money is. And uh, they are being more and more influential of places like Fairfax County, uh, which is way north in the state. Um, they can get reelected and potentially totally screw over Hopewell. They are not going to be affected by any decisions being made on Hopewell. And that's the issue here with regards to accountability. We saw this also with uh, places like Detroit and some of the arguments being made with Detroit or even Flint, Michigan. And Liz Farmer makes this point. I don't want to say that like I came up with this point. Um, And a lot of people have made these points with uh, state takeovers of towns. You have someone, you know, parachute in to the local town and you know, (laughs) carpet bomb, sorry, but, you know, come in and force a lot of decisions on locals and then they leave and they're not the ones who are left with having to deal with the aftermath. The question is the accountability, but the point is also that those who had been local were not you know, they were letting this fester for decades. And the question is, why were they not able 
to get things done. In the case of Detroit, there was abject corruption going on. In the case of Chester, you know, there was a cratering of the local um, industry and some other things going on. I mean, Chicago, well, I don't need to touch that one right now. Um, so the question is, with a variety of some of these smaller towns that we are seeing that them not in, and it's not everywhere. I've seen a lot of smaller towns die and come back in the South that happened with my grandma's town of Marion, South Carolina. I saw a lot of the South Carolina towns when I was a little kid, just be burnt out hulks when I was a little kid. And then you have Walmart come in and actually things started to perk up. And now a lot of these places are kind of boutique retirement communities. Yes, the original inhabitants basically got priced out of these areas. Not going to disagree. And so there are consequences to what is happening in these various towns. And so they end up having to move somewhere else because they can't afford to be in these boutique towns. But this is what happens if you're a town on the on a route that is very convenient for, you know, certain areas like on the way to the beach or a tech community or something like that. Yeah, they'll get priced out. That is what happens. But you have to understand the other option that it wasn't that there was going to be prosperity and th and prices don't escalate. Anyway, so that was story number two. Oh, don't wor worry. It's going to get worse. Story number three is even worse than the second one. So our first tale was that heartwarming tale of management culture getting fixed, supposedly. We'll see <laughs> if they did. Tale number two was the less happy story, which is not finished of potentially uh, Hopewell, Virginia getting taken over by the state. Who knows? That's in the middle of it. And we have the past stories of Detroit and Chester being taken, uh, Chester, Pennsylvania being taken over by their states. Um, so now we're moving to the third part and I'm going to enter it into it with a kind of wry comedic take from the Babylon Bee. If you've never heard of it, it's a Christian kind of uh, comedy site uh, with a political twist. Here we go. Senators say they're not super worried about running up national debt, as most of them will die of national natural causes in the next year or so. I will just read a few bits from this piece. As questions continue to mount regarding the lack of fiscal responsibility exercised by lawmakers, U.S. senators said they are not super worried about running up the national debt, since most of them will die of natural causes in the next year or so. Yeah, we're not too concerned about it, said Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. If any of us were in any position to be alive when it comes time to pay the piper, we might do things a bit differently. As things stand now, most of us have one foot in the grave already, so we're just going to keep tossing away the country's future. By the time things get really bad, we'll be out of here. Skipping over 
a paragraph, and then McConnell's colleagues of advanced age seconded his assessment. Why should we be worried about the future, asked 90-year-old Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. The future? Are you kidding me? I'll be lucky to make it to dinner tonight. Okay. (laughs) Now, I've written in the past many posts on how old those people in the Senate are and how well the Senate is named. Of course, this is based off of the Roman Senate, which was also named after the fact they were supposed to be a bunch of old guys. Senatus absolutely means a bunch of old guys. The word senile comes from the same root. So that's the um, wry humor take, I suppose, on what we're kind of coming up against with regards to the federal finance. Now, that's the wry take. This is a little more serious one and not about uh, federal debt in general, but basically the federal entitlements with Social Security specifically. Um, which is a piece of the federal debt puzzle, but it is a ginormous piece. Um, This is from Charles Blayhouse and Discourse Magazine, dated February 9th, 2024. Americans should be less complacent about Social Security. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to be talking about Social Security reform this time, per se, not about the different choices to be made, just that nobody is making those choices and nobody is addressing the problem. So this is what he had to write. In December 2023, Gallup released the results of its latest survey of Americans' expectations of Social Security. Gallup has been conducting these surveys in essentially similar form for many years, and their latest results qualitatively resemble previous ones. They show a slight uptick in Americans' optimism that Social Security will make good on future benefit promises. Producing Gallup's headline finding, Americans more upbeat about future Social Security benefits. Unfortunately, the optimism expressed by Gallup's respondents is at odds with the reality of Social Security's deteriorating finances, as evidenced by the worsening actuarial shortfall documented in its trustees' annual reports. Never before have Americans had greater reason for concern that they will not receive the benefits Social Security is promising. The reason Americans are feeling blithe about Social Security's future is not because of its actual condition, but because elected officials and media figures avoid a subject whose harsh realities contradict their preferred political narratives. So what am I getting at here? It's not about the specific um, reform that has to be made in this, that, and the other. Uh, What Charles Blayhouse is writing about is the Social Security Trust Fund. And many times people have heard me talk about what crap the Social Security Trust Fund is and, you know, how it's a lie and blah, blah, blah. And it is a lie. It is you know, not a real asset, yada, yada. It is an accounting fiction. However, it is a useful fiction and it has legal force. Where it comes into effect is it prevents the need for Congress to come back every year and do appropriations 
for Social Security benefits. It yanks out of the hands of Congress the formulas of what people are going to get paid from the Social Security program. It puts it, there's a mechanism, you have payroll taxes coming in, you have the Social Security Trust Fund amassing, and it's all numbers on paper, and oh, but they're real bonds, and yeah, they're so real you had to print them on paper, even though real bonds are not printed on paper, not anymore. Um, and so that's how you know they're not real, because they had to print them on paper. And I want you to think about that one with your mind. In any case... Um, but it does have a real legal and political effect. Um, but the trust fund has been in a negative cash flow situation for some years now uh, that the cash has been going out because, of course, most of the baby boomers are um, actually, I think all of the baby boomers, given that Stuart has finally... <laughs> Uh, registered depends on whether you think he's of the last ones he was born in um 1960 when was it 1961 um or if you think the boomers end with 1964 either way they're almost all retired now or all eligible for social security um in any case, the peak of the boomers, which were who were born in 1957 and 1958, absolutely have uh, passed that peak and are retired. Um, some are still working, of course, but, you know, they are past that peak and they're taking their benefits. Now, some people have asked me, have enough died from COVID to make a difference? Well, I'm sorry. No, I'm not going to do that calculation right now but part of the problem is of course inflation uh, social security benefits are indexed to inflation you may have heard that went up so the social security benefit payments went up the payroll taxes by the way you know um those haven't kept up that inflow has not kept up with the outflow therefore um and it's also by the way even the accruing interest on the t trust fund, and that's all numbers on paper, um, has not kept up. And so now we have the trust fund going down and it is supposed to run out in less than a decade. So what does that mean? When that balance goes to zero, again, by legal effect, political effect, um, then that is the point at which if Congress, and that's a huge if, if Congress does not do appropriations, and they will, if they don't act, then you have to have the inflows equal the outflows because that is what the mechanism is set up to do. And that would mean the benefits would just be pro rata across the board cut so that the inflows match the outflows. It's estimated that would be about a 20% to 25% cut across the top to make that balance. Congress would not allow that to happen, by the way. But the way that the Congress people have been acting is that it's not their problem until they're forced to act. 
When I saw Liz Farmer's piece with regards to Hopewell, Virginia, and also talking about other municipalities taken over by states, and she had talked about accountability and a lot of the problems with, you know, and Flint, Michigan, and issues like that. Some of the aspects of the unintended consequences, and it's, I, I don't like that term unintended consequences, by the way, uh, because it doesn't matter. The intentions don't matter one way or the other. It's that the people who are making the decisions are not the ones who suffer the consequences. It's somebody else's problem. And in the case of this third issue, it's that action needs to be taken. And actually this action needed to be taken for decades. The last time some kind of action was taken with regards to Social Security was in the 1990s, so like 30 years ago. Um, it was known at the time it wasn't a full solution, but it was assumed that somebody would do something in those 30 years. And no, it hasn't been. Uh, there have been in the case of financial crises, just a momentary, oh, well, we'll have a payroll tax vacation, which was not a great idea, by the way. Um, in any case, it was always somebody else's problem and it was gonna be somebody in the future. This somebody else's problem, and it's come across, you know, somebody else's problem was most vividly described by Douglas Adams in his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. I'm a big fan of comedy, well, just comedy in general, but yes, comedy science fiction, comedy fantasy, comedy mystery. Um, and in the third book in the series, Life, the Universe, and Everything, there is the character Slarda Bartfast, and he has a spaceship called Bistromath. And the way he hides it is with something called an SEP field, which means that it's somebody else's problem field. And it's because nobody notices somebody else's problem. A different character, Ford Prefect, explains it as an SEP is something we can't see or don't see, or our brain doesn't let us see because we think that it's somebody else's problem. That's what SEP means, somebody else's problem. The brain just edits it out. It's like a blind spot. And what's funny is, of course, Ford Prefect is explaining it to Arthur Dent, another character, while Ford Prefect, knowing that there is something there, he can't see it, his brain is editing it out. Uh, so the way he tries to find it, is by trying to catch it on the edge of his vision. Okay, I'm not going to explain it. It's it's very funny, but it not everybody finds that kind of thing funny. Uh, in any case, um, it's not very funny when it is Social Security, and a lot of people are looking to it as an important part of their retirement. Unfortunately, a lot of people are seeing it as their only source of retirement income, and they should not. Uh, it is not something, it's not a lot of money, actually, um, even for those who are getting it at the maximum level. But I don't want to talk about different reform things right now. I will talk about that in the future. The problem is there would have been more options if this had been dealt with 
years ago. But once the trust fund runs out, the number of options become much more or that the kinds of options become much more harsh and the types of options become fewer. It's it may be somebody else's problem for the men who are 90 years old and are unlikely to survive to that date. It's not pleasant. Accountability, they don't have to worry about it because they won't be there. Somebody had asked me back in December 2023, and I am going to do this, by the way, person who asked me, and you know who you are, um, I am going to figure this out. I just haven't done it yet. How many of the people living now, and we'll just, to make it simpler, in the U.S., um, and I'll make it even simpler, currently living in the U.S., uh, will be living in the year 2075. Now, of course, it depends on certain assumptions, but it it does relate to the decisions being made right now with regards to social security, to federal debt, to climate change, to all sorts of things that extend into the future. And 2075 is, you know, only 51 years into the future. It's not that long a lot of people are like, oh, that's very long. But, you know, from an actuarial point of view, from my point of view, that's not that far into the future. And you have people who are avoiding making decisions that need to be made that are having an effect only 10 years. This is, I am not happy, as you can tell, that this is the situation. Um, and a lot of people are avoiding that accountability and just hoping, you know, doing that musical chairs, doing that hot potato, uh, and that they won't be there when the time comes due. A lot of us younger people, and I'm you know, going to be 50, but it's just like, I'm still, I'm like, I probably will be around to see all this go down. I'm not terribly happy about that. Um, it would be nice if somebody who would take responsibility, would take some accountability, uh, could actually be allowed to, you know, deal with these problems rather than having somebody who is 90 years old, 80 years old, say, who may not be there, who may not be there to suffer the consequences of decisions being made or decisions not being made, which is a decision that is being made. So that is me doing actuarial dooms telling doomsday. Um, I'm, you know, generally a little more bright and sunny, but I am not today. And you can tell Lint is coming. Memento Mori. And unfortunately, in this case, that actually would be the happy thing. You're not there to see the disaster. So Memento Mori. Remember you will die. Okay, well, that's been Stump, Death and Taxes, and maybe I'll have something happier next time. Talk to y'all later. <laughs> <laughs>